Welcome back to Podcast Recovery. We are your hosts, David O. And Eric V. Today we are joined by Jason. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Absolutely, yeah, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, where are you from, Jason? I'm from just north of Boston in Beverly, Mass. Oh, okay, cool. Um, when, were you, when were you first introduced to recovery? Um, my sobriety date, actually, July 24th of 2017, is the first time I ever went at this and uh, been going at it strong one day at a time since. All right. So your uh, clean date is uh, 7-24-17. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah. Well, well, with all that out of the way, I'm going to turn it over to you to share your story with us. So take her away. Awesome. So, again, thanks for having me. And since my my journey started, I've had these opportunities. I've been really blessed to be able to share my story and, you know, spread the word of hope and inspiration. And that's really the most important part to my recovery. And, you know, I realized early on that this was bigger than me and that there was a reason why I finally, you know, was getting sober, that I finally went, went at it like full throttle and it was, it was working mm-hmm. and, you know, knock on wood, it was still, still going strong today because I don't think I could ever go through that process again. There's just no way it was so brutal. And, you know, it was necessary. Of course Mm -hmm. I had to go through all of the the pain and suffering because that that's what I needed for me to get to where I am today. And, you know, it took me a little while to realize that it wasn't going to come quickly and that I couldn't just wipe away the 10 years of where I was just self-destructing and destructing those around me. Yeah. I couldn't just, you know, you know, snap my finger and that's gone because, Hey, I'm sober now. Mm -hmm. And and, and that's all right. And I, and I realized that more in time. Um, but I am, you know, blessed that major relationships in my life, I have been able to, you know, really repair Mm -hmm. and in particular with, with my mother. And really that's where I'll start is, I grew up with a single mom in an alcoholic household. You know, mm-hmm. she took me she took me out of that when I was in like fifth grade, mm-hmm. and you know, I saw things that you know probably shouldn't, and you know, went through things that probably shouldn't. But for me, that was the norm. I didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I knew, no one else, like no one else in my school growing up, had their dad going in and out of jail. Mm-hmm. You know, my father who was like my hero back then, you know, he was this big strap and he was Hulk to me. Uh, you know, especially he, he, all the sports that he really just pushed on me and sports to this day are pretty much the most defining thing that I'm known for. And mm-hmm. you know, where my true love came is, is baseball. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he was in and out of jail from when I can remember. Mm-hmm. All the way up until he was 63 years old, 2015, Oof. I remember, you know, picking him up at the, the county jail after he just did a year and a half for another, I wasn't drunk driving. He got originally charged with that, but he ended up getting like uh, disorderly driving or something. I, I forget the term they used, mm-hmm. but you know, 63 years old and he's in jail and that's the path I was 100% 
going on. There, there's yeah. no question about it. And I told myself, though, and I told my mother when we left, I will never be like that. I will make sure that I get us, you know, a nice house. And my thought was, you know, like hamsters, they have houses next to each other and then the little tunnel connects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I always said that to her. That's what I was going to do. You know, we're going to have adjoining houses with the, with the hamster tunnel to connect us <laughs> because, you know, she was my everything. And I wanted to make sure she was next to me. She was right there at all, at all costs because, um, she, you know, what she endured, I didn't know at the time, obviously until I started to get older and realize what was going on mm-hmm. and, and knowing now, you know, she's a saint, you know, to be able to get me, you know, through everything, get me out of there and get me through everything and put me, you know, in great situations to thrive in life mm. is something that only a saint could do. And, yeah. you know, the, the terrible part about addiction, though, is, you know, hurting people like that in your life. Yeah. And that, that's just, that's just the, you know, the devil itself, the demon that is addiction is you don't care about anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, she was, it was everything to me, but when I was, you know, you trying to get high or trying, you know, it didn't matter. My relationship with her didn't matter. My relationship with anyone, yep. you know, and mostly with myself, you know, it was just all about getting what I needed to get to make sure I felt quote unquote normal and yeah. whatever that may be. So I, you know, like I said, she got me into the places that would, were going to you know, make sure I was you know, going to be safe and have the best chances at life. And so I went to an all boys Catholic high school mm-hmm. just north of Boston and it's known for its sports and its academics. And like I mentioned, sports were everything to me. And I still had contact with my father, mm-hmm. you know, not like he lives a couple cities over mm-hmm. and I would visit him you know, often, but there was often times where he wouldn't answer the door, even though it was home. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, looking back, that's not normal, but yeah. I didn't know any better. And so when I got in high school, I started, to, you know, I played football and baseball and I started flourishing in both sports to the point where I got scholarship offers for both sports up and down the East coast. Nice. And it was my first game, my senior year of football. And I was in, we were playing against a team in Brooklyn, another all boys school in Brooklyn. We traveled uh, down there Nice. and I'll never forget. I get a phone call from my sister. I have an older sister and brother from my dad's um, first marriage and only marriage. Mm-hmm. My parents were never, my parents were never married, but he was before my mother and I have a older brother and older sister, mm-hmm. 10 and 15 years older. So my sister wow. called me and told me, dad had did it again. And what she meant was he got arrested again. Yeah. And so long story short is he couldn't watch any of my senior year football games, except for he got granted by his parole officer to come to my last game of, of my career. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I made the vow to my mother. Like, never will I become that person. Never, ever, ever, you know, cause I was old enough now to understand, you know, what, what he was and mm-hmm. and going all the way to now I know what he was is he had a sickness, he had a disease, but obviously I did not know it then. I just like, I despised him and I blamed him for everything that ever wrongs that ever happened to me for a very long time until, you know, basically I got sober. And so I ended up going down to Florida. Mm-hmm. I was going to play baseball and football in New York at a school in Wagner, uh, 
but I decided I just want to play baseball in the sun. So mm-hmm. I went to the University Makes of Tampa, sense. which is nice. great baseball school. Tampa's a, a beautiful city, and it was a great choice. And I was really, you know, uh, lucky to, to get there and start playing baseball for a, a nationally ranked team. Nice. My sophomore year, we made it to the College World Series, and we played in the national championship game. Unfortunately, we lost the national championship, but I was named the College World Series MVP. Wow. And it was at that point, you know, yes, it was a very bittersweet moment, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it was at that point that my dreams were going to come true. There was no doubt about it. I just continued doing what I was doing. Then the opportunity to play Major League Baseball was head but my dream. And, you know, I don't know, four, five, six, you know, that's been my, my father's dream for me. That's what everyone in my town, in, in Beverly, mm-hmm. my high school friends, that's what everyone expected of me. Mm-hmm. It was Jason is going to play Major League Baseball. That, that was just it. Mm-hmm. And here it is. It's coming. It's coming to fruition. Six months later, I got kicked off the team and I got kicked off the team for an alcohol related incident. Mm. And that was a real wake up call. You you would think. Yeah. And it was horrible. I remember leaving the coach's office, just bawling my eyes out. And I had a vendetta against him until I got sober as well. You know, blaming him for why I was getting kicked off the team, which mm-hmm. obviously is, is not the situation, but yeah. that's how I thought at that time. Mm-hmm. And somehow way I got a second chance at another baseball powerhouse, this time on the West Coast in California at Chico State. So mm-hmm. I had scholarship offer there or to Boston College, so I'd be coming home. And I didn't want to come home. I didn't want to you know, play with all the kids already that I grew up playing with because yeah. they'd be my high school, like the talented kids went to BC and our rivals went there. So I was like, let's, let's, let's do something different. And I went out to California. Mm-hmm. What I did not know, and my mother still doesn't believe me to this day, is Chico State is known for being the number one party school. And you hear that all the time that schools say that, but yeah. they were actually, according to Playboy, the number when Playboy started their rankings, they were the first one that was number one. Wow. I had no idea. And... When I was there, my senior year, Playboy did another rank, and they didn't do it often, mm-hmm. and Chico wasn't in it, but the whole article was about Chico State. Hmm. So basically, you're just you know, putting you know, gasoline on the fire, you know, yeah. put me right in that situation. Obviously, I'm going to you know, fall into the, the same things that I was doing before, mm-hmm. and this is where baseball started to become second and that's for the first time ever it wasn't first in my life Mm. and I had a real good junior year I went back to the college world series we didn't win it but after that year my coach pulled me aside and he said you're going to be drafted in the top 10 rounds wow remember that conversation as clear as day because I was like here it is here it is Jason like just do what you're doing well I didn't I just relied on my talents and thought that would take me all the way I didn't put any extra work in I didn't Mm. care enough and you know, ultimately, my senior year was a disaster. <laughs> I didn't get drafted, obviously. Mm. I Now I started to become, you know, really into drugs, heavy into cocaine when I got out there. And I was to the point where I was not only using, but I was starting to sell it to support my habit. Yeah. And things just got real ugly from that point on. I did the five and a half year plan. So after I finished baseball, I, I was an, another year and a half there. And I was working as a bartender. 
selling drugs, doing drugs. Yeah. It was just horrible. And I could not wait. I was counting down the days till I could get out of California because mm-hmm. I was blaming it on California is the reason why that's where the cocaine was. And that's where it came into my life. And it's their fault. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the truth's fault. It's everyone else's fault. Everyone, everything's fault. It's never mm-hmm. Jason's fault. Oh yeah. So what I do is I graduated in December, 2006 and I moved to Florida because my mother and my stepdad, um, my mother, got blessed by finding who I call my savior. And I, the man who I idolize and look up to most in life is, is my stepfather. And she met him while I was in high school. And you know, they're going on 22 years now. So she got what she deserved after all the shit that she went through, after all the heartache, all the pain. And we're talking physical and emotional and mm-hmm. verbal. She found the man that treated her right. And mm. he really shows me how to be a man. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'll speak more on that in a bit, but mm-hmm. I moved to, back to Florida to live with them just outside of Tampa. I got a great job with Fidelity downtown Tampa. Well, that was 2007. And 2007 is when the opioid, you know, Oxycontin was hit. Was hitting yeah. Florida was the, the hub of it all. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one to say no to anything. I like to try things. Yeah. So one thing led to another. And before I know it, I'm doing pills every single day. I need mm-hmm. to do them to work. After Fidelity, the branch I was in went down. I was there for two years. I followed a friend who opened his own um, business. And I would arrive at work and there'd be a 30 milligram oxycodone waiting for me on my desk. Almost like every day, like clockwork. It was you know, it's insane thinking about it now. Yeah. But I loved it. It helped me make a lot of money. Mm. It helped me make the owners a lot of money. But what it also do is it helped me destroy my life. Yeah. Because that's, you know, what really, I was already an alcoholic. I didn't, I didn't know it yet. Yeah. And I was drinking, you know, pretty much uh, on the weekends, you know, started Thursday. But Oxy is what really started taking everything away from me. So mm. what did I do? After I'm like a year and a half of abusing it, I was like, I need to get out of Florida. Florida is the reason why I'm like so out of control. This is all their <laughs> fucking fault. I can't be here anymore. California, you're to blame for the cocaine. Florida, fuck you. You're to blame for the oxy. That's what I was <laughs> So what do I do? I, I go, I need to go home. I need to go home to my friends are, you know, the rest of my family, which really I don't have any. I had my brother and sister. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my, my train of thought. It didn't take maybe a couple of weeks till I found it, you know, there. Mm-hmm. And I started abusing it. And that's where I just started completely destroying my life. And other people started noticing it. And, but I was completely oblivious. Yeah. Fast forward to 2016. I was drinking every single day. I was abusing uh, cocaine. Now I did, uh, you know, I got on Suboxone for a year and a half and I got off Oxy completely for like four years. Mm-hmm. So I was just drinking and you know doing partying with cocaine, but I was like that functioning functioning alcoholic, going from job to job, and I get bored of a job or I knew they were gonna fire me, I'd quit first, and it was just it was a complete shit show. So, <clears throat> I 2016, the first day of the year, uh, I I was living with my father, so I didn't talk to him for ten years. 
Mm, wow. you know, maybe I saw him on Thanksgiving when I came home. They were just, my family's very small. There's six of us now. It's down to four. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I had this, something was telling me I needed to just go live with him and take care of him. I can't explain it, really, but something made me feel like I needed to. Okay. So I, I moved in with him back in my hometown, basically the house I grew up in. Yeah. And within like a month or so, I came home one day and he was, I thought he was dead. He had blood come, coming out of every orifice oh. and or, I called 911. He gets rushed out. And what happened was he had kidney failure. Oh, and geez. so he was in a coma for a full month and then a medically, like and a medically induced one for another couple of weeks. And from that point on, he had to be on dialysis three days a week for the rest of his life. Oof. I'm living with that. I'm seeing that I'm still drinking every single day. I'm seeing firsthand that Hulk, that I, that I grew up with, yeah. he's whittling down slowly, but surely, Ooh. but oblivious to it. I'm still drinking all the time, you know, partying with drugs, you know, here and there too. Mm-hmm. Up to January 1st on in 2016, I come home and my brother always told me if I find alcohol, just take it away from my dad. Yeah. And I did that. Well, he was already, you know, on one pretty good by that time. It was like noon. I did a polar plunge in the morning and I came back. And so it just led into one of the worst days of my life, worst moments. He broke a lamp and he threatened it, threatened me with it. And screaming and yelling, my grandmother, who at the time was like 97, 96, my sister lives on the third floor. So it's my family. We've owned it since the 40s. My nan is on the first floor. Wow. My dad and I were on the second. My sister's on the third. And so they come up, they hear all the commotion. And in the midst of that, he calls the cops on me. I couldn't believe it. But I knew I had to get out of there. So I left through the back door, called my mother. She only lives a mile away, thankfully. And, and I go hang out there. And my Nana calls me. She's like, Jay, I, I don't know what to tell you, but there's a warrant out for your arrest. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. And the charges were abuse domestic against an elderly. Because he said I hit my grandmother, which she was like telling the cops, absolutely none of this happened. Mm-hmm. My, you know, my son's been drinking, meaning him. But on domestic, you, there's nothing you can do. You have to, you know, just in case you have to get the person. Yeah. So the next day I had to turn myself in and I made my father come with me because I wanted him to see me get shackled. I want him to, to see me get handcuffed. Ooh, I wanted wow. him to see what, what he did to me. Wow. And all that happened. Thankfully, you know, eventually the, everything got dropped because my Nana kept sending things in. Mm-hmm. But I lost coaching baseball, high school baseball. I lost my job because of my Corey check came back with a pending domestic assault on an elderly. Like, Ooh. you know, it's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> that for six months, it was just the worst six months of my life. Mm. And I had pancreatitis and I shit you not six times in six months. I spent a little over two months combined between all the hospital stays. My longest stay was 17 days. Mm. And that was the second time I was there. It was February. Wow. Doctor comes in and says, Jason, I need your mother's number. Why? Why do you need? I need to call her and tell her her only child is going to die due to alcoholism. Oof. Boom. And left me. Left me. I, I was floored. Because what I, I had now is I had beginning stages of congestive heart failure. I had a form of pneumonia and pancreatitis. I was 32 years old. Two years prior, I was in the best shape of my life playing minor league baseball. I don't get much into it. I played two years from 27 to 29. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was drinking every single day playing. It, it was a great time, but it's not much really more to say about that. Is, you know, but I was in the best shape of my life. And here I am now. 
I was up to 239 pounds, just about to die from alcoholism. Wow. This is how sickening the disease is. I would leave there and I'd go right to the Packy. A, a Packy's a liquor store mm-hmm. up here. I'd go right there from the hospital every single time. It was horrible. And, you know, <clears throat> fast forward to Christmas, that, that my dad was, you know, still getting dialysis three day, uh, three days a week. And he was getting, you know, real much, much more sick. And mm-hmm. I'd go visit him. I'd wail him around in the wheelchair. Cause he'd go extended stays. And finally at, he got, um, he was back home and he got, he fell. And so I had to call and he went in and my mother said it. She's like, you know, that's the last time he's ever going to come home. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think anything of it. Well, Christmas morning in 2016 at nine, nine, 10 in the morning, my dad died in front of me. Um, from, from alcoholism. Ooh, you know, I was, Jesus. I was the only one in the room. You know, the doctors and the nurses left and uh, let me share, you know, and what I was looking at wasn't my father anymore. It wasn't even like resembling a human being for that matter. But what I saw through that, I was looking at myself. Mm. That, that was me. And any, in a short amount of time, yeah. I, that was exactly what I was going to, you know, where I was going to be. Mm-hmm. If I didn't do anything. Well, I didn't do anything because I went on the biggest bender of my life for eight months. Somehow I found Oxycontin again after not doing it for four years. Yeah. And it stripped me of everything. Mm-hmm. I was just, I was an absolute scumbag. You know, stealing money from my now 97-year-old grandmother. You know, mm-hmm. stealing money from, you know, cars. Going around collecting cans at night so I could, you know, get enough to, you know, for nips the next morning. Oof. And then... You know, the money I stole, I would use to buy, I would go to the city to where my dealer was. I would go there three times a day because I can't go there and buy 10 at once because I'll do them all. So I had to go there three times a day. The addict in me, you know, $300 a day. Yeah. Well, that, that went on until July 23rd of 2017. I'll never forget. I got home from work. I was a bouncer. And, of course, at a bar drinking nips the whole time, doing coke in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And I got home you know, like one thirty the morning on sun, uh, Sunday, the 23rd. And I knew the next day, I can't, I can't explain it. I just knew exactly what was going to unfold the next day. I knew that I was going to get a bang on the door. It was going to be my brother. He was going to confront me about the missing money. Mm. It was going to happen. It was just, there was no doubt about it. Yeah. Well, I get a bang on, on the door and I'm screaming like, what the fuck do you want? It's like seven in the morning. He goes, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. Get downstairs now. And so, he just flat out said, what, where's the money? And of course I deny it at first. Deny it, deny, deny it. But mm-hmm. I start shaking. He's like, why are you shaking? Why are you crying? And then I just, the biggest relief of my life. I, I just let it all out. I told the truth. I was honest. Yeah. And I told him how bad it was. He couldn't believe that it got to that level. I told him how much money really I stole. We're talking upwards of $5,000. And one thing he, he said, he went in the other room dropping F-bombs after F-bombs. But he came back in, and what he said next, I think, was pretty much what saved my life. He says, I'm so fucking mad at you, but I'm so proud of you. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. You know, here's a kid. He lost his father to alcoholism. His mother died of an overdose when he was 17. His best friend died of an overdose, and now his brother's an alcoholic, you know, on the verge of dying, too. So he understood the disease. He was a disease. Yeah. You know, he understood that I wasn't, I wasn't, there's no way in hell I was making those decisions. Like I wanted to, yeah. I didn't have a drink or a drug the last three years that I wanted to, I had to, I did not want to. Mm-hmm. And so 
I let it all out. I called the local um, Danvers, which is town over, to get a bed. They had a bed, 9 o'clock in the morning. I called my mother, and the only way she would speak to me is if I got help. And I said, this is for real. Can you pick me up at 6 o'clock? And she's like, why 6? I go, I want to go to a 7 a.m. meeting before and you know, have breakfast with you and then drop me off. Nice. And so when I walked into, the, into that detox, walked through the doors on July 24th, my life forever changed. I walked in with open arms and I said, just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do so that I never, ever go back to that life again. I don't care what it is. I don't care how much pain I got to go through. I don't care how many tears I have to shed. Nothing will ever be worse than what I already went through. Nothing will ever compare to the life where I was suicidal every single day. Mm-hmm. Only way I'm thinking I'm going to die is if I get in a car accident or kill someone else. Like, that, was, that was it. That's where my mind was hopeless, completely nothing was going in my life other than next where I was like, I was heading for death or yeah. jail forever. That was it. So I said, just tell me what I need to do. I don't care what it is. And I kept that attitude for seven months. I went away for seven months hmm. and it was the first time I ever did this. I said, I wanted help before, you know, I said, Oh, I'll stop just to appease my brother or my mother, but I never did it. This yeah. time I went for myself. Because I knew I was going to die. I'm like, I just got to get better. I don't, whatever. I don't, I want to live. Mm-hmm. Even though I was suicidal, I didn't want to die. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the journey began. And that's where this past, coming up on two years has been amazing. The mm-hmm. things I've got to be able to achieve. And, you know, I realized, it, as I mentioned right from the start, it was way bigger than me. Yeah. This is way bigger than I started writing. And that writing, I said I was going to write a book. I was, you know, just journaling. People are like, who do you think you are? People in the community. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And so I kept writing and writing. And I sent my mom an email in November saying, Mom, I'm going to become a best-selling author. Well, I released the book on June 1st, and I be- it became a national bestseller two weeks later. Wow. I wrote that book while I was in rehab. So don't, no one can tell me that anything's not possible. No one can ever fucking tell me that mm-hmm. they can't do something. You know, not everyone needs to go write a book to prove you know, that anything's possible, Yeah. but that was my way. And that was my therapy. That was my sobriety. A lot of people where I was getting recovery, they said I need to stop writing and focus on myself and my recovery. Well, they didn't realize that that was my recovery. Mm-hmm. Writing was my therapy. Writing was where I got things out that I never said before. And yeah. that's where I got better mentally. You know, I slowly but surely started getting confidence back and getting that self-love and self-worth back. I started seeing my physical appearance getting better. And I was like, wow, I can really, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And that writing, when I put it out on Christmas Eve, I, um, a year to the date of my dad's death, he died Christmas. I put it on Facebook where I was for the first time. I, you know, I went silent for five months mm-hmm. Then I'm in, I'm, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic to me. You know, it's all the same. Yeah. And I don't care. And I, and I put one of my, my, um, pieces of writing it was a breakup letter with alcohol mm-hmm. and i got flooded with messages from people from little league elementary school to people across the country that i didn't even know mothers fathers sisters reaching out to me and every single one was saying thank you and why i was like why well i i didn't realize i'm not the only one mm-hmm. and, in some regards or whatever they were, you know, they related to that. There was other people just like them. Mothers would say, thank you. Thank you for letting me get a better understanding of what's going on in my child's head. Yeah. And then friends that I haven't spoken to in years, I've never told anyone this. 
but I'm an alcoholic too. I, I struggled for so long mm. and thank you. I feel so much better. I can get this out. And I was like, Oh my goodness, it, this is my calling. You know, there was so many no coincidence moments that were happening in my life yeah. that there was no other reason other than I'm supposed to be a voice for the sick and suffering. I'm supposed to be someone that's going to make a difference. Yeah. And so I made it my, my, my life's mission to do so. You know, writing that book, finishing that book, in that book, it's not an autobiography by any means. It's mm -hmm. not really a memoir. But what it is, it, it's a book to show you that it, it doesn't matter how far down you are. It doesn't matter how depressed, how alone. I was there, and I, and I overcame that. And I was in a very bad place. Some people are in worse places, but they can still do it, too. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to write that book to show the people who I was in. I went to six months. I was in a month in a detox and a holding, and then six months at the Link House, which is um, about 45 minutes north of where I live. Mm -hmm. And that's the place that forever changed my life because it gave me structure. It gave me discipline. You know, from waking up at a certain time, uh, being told what to do, and actually having to do it, or there's serious consequences. Oh, yeah. Well, everyone in that house almost, like, the majority, everyone seemed miserable, and I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're cool and sober. What is there to be miserable about? Hmm. But what I didn't realize, you know, my, my counselor and my therapist, like people come in at different, you know, different things. Yeah. And I accept that. Okay. People have different baggage. Yeah. But everyone comes to the house with the same exact opportunities. Mm. It doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, those 22 years old to 65, everyone has the same opportunities. It's about what are you going to do with them? Mm -hmm. For me, as I mentioned, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure I never go back. I don't care what it is, how hard it is, you know, how, how vulnerable I have to be. Mm -hmm. I'll do it to assure that I never go back there. I'll also do it now to put it in writing to assure that someone doesn't have to be where I was. Yeah. Because I don't want anyone to go there. I, my worst enemy, I don't want them to be where I was. That was hell. And so people are, were really miserable around me, and it made me want to write more and more. I was writing for them mm. because I wanted to show them that they can do whatever they want. They can still, once they leave there, have a beautiful life. Mm-hmm. You know, because now you're in recovery doesn't mean you have to withhold yourself from going after your dreams. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the things you always wanted, that addiction took away from you, doesn't mean you can't have them anymore. Because you can. And yeah. then some. And then some. Mm. And that's how did I know it was happening in my life? I'm actual evidence. So I don't need to read a book or hear from a third person. I fucking experienced it. Mm. And so I wanted people to know that they could too. Yeah. And so I started speaking. Mm -hmm. My other mission was, I said to my therapist, I'm going to speak at the state level. So I had 2018, I had two goals, write a best-selling book, speak at the state level. On August 31st, International Overdose Awareness Day, I got selected to be one of eight speakers to speak on the Boston Common, mm. which wow. is the, the Boston Common is the front lawn of the state house. Yeah. So I, I got to do that. I put it out there. I'm big on you know, putting things out there. And the power of the universe. I'm big on you know personal um, personal development, positive thinking. Because mm -hmm. again, it was working in my life. I brainwashed myself, and I still do to this day. Listen to motivational videos every day on my way to work. What do I do for work now? I'm a recovery coach. I got educated because I wanted to give back. I remember, my, this is my this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be here to help others so they don't go to where I was, or if they are where I I was, that they can get better too and live out the life that they want to. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do every single day. And I just continue to this help. I get strangers reaching out to me all the time, you know, and I started what I call it. It's 
a, a movement per se, a philosophy, motivational recovery. And it came to me one day when I was walking to the library. Nice. See, at the link house, we weren't allowed to have a cell phone, a car, no internet, mm-hmm. no relationships, no jobs. You just had to focus on yourself and get in better. And that's exactly how it should have been. And I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So I only got 90 minutes a day to leave. We only got 90 minutes to leave the house. And the library is a mile away. I'd walk there in the dead of winter. Didn't matter. It was negative 13 one time, I remember. Because I had to transfer what I wrote onto, you know, onto Microsoft Word for my book. Yeah. In the background, though, I'm listening to these motivational videos, these positive, you know, positive um, mindset videos. Mm-hmm. And I read 30 books on the same exact thing in those first six, seven months. 30 books from, you know, uh, Think and Grow Rich to Chris Heron's Basketball Junkie to Josh Hamilton's uh, book. Mm. I just read anything I possibly could that I knew was going to help me get better and that you know, so I had all these tools. Everyone's way of getting sober is different. Yeah. And I realized that my journey is going to be different from every single other person in that house. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. If it's going to keep you sober, I'm all for it. Absolutely. If you, it's going to keep a needle out of your arm, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. And the last thing, and with this is, I mentioned putting things out into the universe. Mm-hmm. I had, at, at the link house, we had a therapist and a counselor. You had the option to have a therapist. And so I definitely went and saw her. And I, I said things that I've never told anyone. The biggest mm-hmm. secrets I've ever had felt so good. Again, it's you know therapy because I put it in writing too, and I'd share that. And she told me to check out a book by Brene Brown. Um, she had two: Daring Greatly and The Gifts of Imperfection. She gave me one of them. She said, "Why don't you you love you love your motivational videos? Listen to her TED talk." And mm-hmm. I said, "What's a TED talk?" She's like, "You really don't know." I'm like, "I have no idea." So I see her once a week. I read the first book, Gifts of Imperfection. She gave me, I read it within that first week. I mm-hmm. couldn't put it down. I came back and I said, I'm going to see if there's any TED Talks in Boston. She goes, that's great. I go, I'm going to speak at one though. And she's like, oh, okay, Jason. You know, kind of not mocking me, but like, come on. You know, mm-hmm. that's great. You have these grand ambitions, but come on. Yeah. Well, I, I, I kept that. I kept putting it out in the universe and I applied to TEDx Boston College 2018. I made it through the first round of cuts. But then I didn't get selected. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so. Obviously, I was pissed at the time. But I was still living, you know, basically in a halfway house, sober home, rehab, whatever you want to call it. I was still living with 15 other alcoholics and addicts. Yeah. I was still being told when I need to uh, take my medicine, you know. So I wasn't ready for that stage. Yeah. But for the years where I got prepared for that stage. By speaking at many events, speaking in front of legislation, speaking mm-hmm. on podcasts every week, and speaking... the. One of the senators in Massachusetts asked me to be a guest on her show and go fast forward now to TEDx, Boston College, 2019. I applied and I got selected. Wow. And so on March 30th, I got to give my first TED Talk. And I say my first because I know I'm going to give multiple ones. Mm -hmm. And my TED Talk, you know, it it was proof again that anything is possible. Just put it out of the universe. Keep going after what you want. Don't give up. You know, all the cliches are actually true. Mm Mm-hmm. And my TED Talk was titled The Connection the Addict Craves. Hmm. And I wrote about that because my job, I was a recovery coach, but I also became a certified pair specialist. And becoming a pair specialist, it was a two-week course, was the most like, transformational and educational thing I've ever gone through. Mm-hmm. And it made me re- really appreciate the human being. It made me peel back all the layers, all the layers to 
instead of saying to the panhandle, of, why don't you just go get a job at McDonald's or Walmart, to saying, why, why is he or she there? Mm-hmm. Well, because they're an alcoholic or an addict. Well, why that? Because they had major trauma when they're younger or they went through you know, a, a bad divorce. Mm-hmm. Someone they love died. And so you peel all these layers back and you realize that person's just like me. I could have ended up in that same position. Yeah. There's no doubt I was going to. And by asking the why, you start you know, getting down to know the individual. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just sitting there with someone in silence, is that means the world to them because no one's ever done that. Oh, yeah. I, I worked, we had 43 group homes at my, my former job, and I worked at seven of them in the inner city of Boston, in the worst parts of Boston. And, you know, I was the recovery coach first, but I was more so of just, you know, another human being there to connect with them mm-hmm. because these people have been put down their entire lives. They've been told, you know, their shit. Oh yeah. Their entire life. They have no confidence, no self-esteem. And now they have just have someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Just someone to talk to means the world to them. And so I wanted to share that with the entire world. And I know a Ted talk would give me that opportunity. Mm-hmm. It would give me the opportunity to show you that anything is possible, that there's no discrimination when it comes to addiction mm-hmm. and that you, know, you too can do whatever it is that you want in the world. And lastly is just building that human connection with one another. And I, I'll take, take all that with me forever that, you know, what I learned in that pair special, um, pair specialist class is something that's going to help me, not only in just as, as a job and, and, you know, as what I'm trying to do for a, a living in my life more mm-hmm. so, but in my relationships with, you know, with my girlfriend, with my mother, with strangers and so forth. Mm-hmm. It, it was the biggest, you know, it's such a blessing that I have, you know, all these things fall into place. And why? Because that it's bigger than me. Yeah. There was no coin. These are moments that should not have happened, but they did because I'm supposed to be where I am today. And, you know, that's now on this podcast, sharing my story and, you know, sharing in, in my mission. Hmm. And you know, that's pretty much the gist of it. <laughs> All right, man. That's awesome. All right. Cool. We definitely got some questions for you. Do you want to start, Eric? <laughs> no, go ahead. I can, I can start. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, all right. So how, uh, was like the lack of a positive, like male role model, um, like in your youth, how, how did that influence like your addiction? Well, what I finally started realizing is why I was so angry as a child. You know, when my mother and I left in fifth grade, Mm -hmm. we stayed in the same town for the time being. And like I said, I still visited my father but I was a very angry child. I would call my name, my mom names that are just like, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm so ashamed of it that, that that's what I did to the woman who gave, you know, her, her shirt off her back, literally for me. She worked two jobs, uh, in a double, I mean, pretty much every day as a waitress, just so she could get me, you know, whatever it is to make sure I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was so angry. I didn't realize this though, until I was in that, you know, therapy, I was angry because of all the stuff I saw. Mm. I saw my dad doing those things all the time, verbally mm. abusing everyone in the house. And I know of physical abuse too. Mm-hmm. You know, thankfully I never was the victim of that. My mother put him in his place. And if you do that, I'm leaving you. And I know people that'll take care of you basically. Mm. And so he never, never touched me, but 
and got all the verbal abuse as possible, being told all the worst things. And I just, it was just, my house was full of anger. Mm-hmm. And that translated into when I was in middle school, into when I was adult too. Yeah. You know, having that quick temper, being very defensive and, and on the, you know, on the, um, what, <laughs> on the defensive, like, if you say something, why? And why are you coming at me? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to hit you first before you have a chance to. Mm-hmm. And that's because they didn't have a positive role model, obviously, at the house. There was no, there was no male figure. Yeah. What he did, and, and I, I love my father, don't get me wrong, and I love him more now than ever. Yeah. You know, what he did was make me an amazing athlete. And he, same for my brother and my sister. And what he did was he taught me, you know, the value of hard work and really just going after things. Mm-hmm. But I never had any, you know, father-son talks. I didn't have, you know, I was, I was told to fight people. He set up fights in my neighborhood with me and kids three, three years older than me. Wow. You know, that, that's what it was. Yeah, I, I was nine. This kid was 12. <laughs> and, you know, so I didn't have any type of positive role model whatsoever. And my mom, you know, when we left, she's working all the time. Mm-hmm. So she's doing her best just to put a roof over my head and put in, obviously food on the table and clothes on my back, but I'm by myself now, mm-hmm. you know, after school, I'm by myself. I'm left to do whatever it is, spend it for myself, you know, cooking whatever I can until she gets home at nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. And I didn't have anyone there to really show me the rope. So mm-hmm. it definitely was, uh, you know, a factor not having that mm-hmm. and going into, again, full blown addiction is just, um, I'm fending for myself. Yeah. And I'll, I don't care who you are or what I got to do to hurt you to get what I need. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right. Awesome. Cool. What you got, Eric? All right. So um, I guess sports, from what it seemed like, was kind of like your main release growing up. Um, and I guess, you know, you were talking about when you were in the, col- um, the College World Series and, you know, how you had this kind of projection and then when that didn't quite go your way, um, did you use, like, do you think the drugs kind of filled the void of what, you know, sports was filling? Hmm. Yes. And I, I didn't realize it though, until, you know, getting sober is where I had all these realizations, Mm -hmm. you know, from the fact that my father was, he, he was a very bad person, but he was a very sick person. And, you know, that was probably the first realization. Second realization was I was an alcoholic that moment I got kicked off the team. That's where it all started. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I didn't drink every day like I did the last seven years of my my using, but that's where alcohol started to take control of my life. And I definitely would run to a drink to numb the feelings. Mm-hmm. When I got like off that team, I still had uh, like a month or two months left at school and it was just a party the whole time because I didn't care anymore. Yeah. You know, alcohol took that, you know, took away my love for baseball. It took away my caring for myself, it, you know, and that's, that's the real sickening part about it and how, you know, the demon that it is. And so it, it, it's something that I ran to forever until July 23rd. Mm. Wow. All right. Um, hmm. What question am I going to go with next? Uh, 
Okay, so how was the process of, like, you talked about um, in college how, like, when you got kicked off, like, the Tampa baseball team, you blamed the coach, and then you went out to California, but you blamed California, you went back to Florida, you're b- blaming Florida. How was it, um, and, like, how has it been sort of, like, taking responsibility and really changing your your own mentality about, like, what's what happened in your life and, like, what's going to happen in the future instead of, like, blaming things on others and instead like really like making yourself accountable, um, for your future. Accountability is probably one of the three most important things of my recovery and no doubt about it. I, I put it in my Ted talk. Um, I speak about it often. The other part, other thing that's is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are two topics I can speak on for hours and write on for know forever and what i noticed is the people who were really still miserable that i was that were still they were in the link house with me they were miserable because they were still full of you know guilt and shame mm-hmm. of what they did now i did a lot a lot of bad things yeah. you know things that I, i'll always be ashamed of because i hurt people that i love you mm-hmm. know my mother and my family but the only way I was ever going to get better and, you know, to be fully you know, clear of what alcohol, you know, the destruction that alcohol and drugs did was to own up to it. Mm-hmm. And by owning up to it, whether it was just putting it out there, you know, putting it out into the, just speaking it to you know, a counselor or a therapist, writing it, you know, getting it off my chest mm-hmm. is something. And that's when I, when I, coach individuals a lot they're they're holding on all of this baggage as well and so just getting it out there is such a relief oh yeah and you know so i take accountability for everything i ever did i do not blame anyone for anything i do not blame Mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol for for what i did Mm -hmm. i am responsible you know did i want did i choose no, I no, I didn't. I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be an alcoholic, an addict. I'm going to ruin my fucking life. Yeah. And everyone <laughs> around me. I didn't wake up one day and have that realization. Yeah. You know, so what I did, though, I'm still held accountable for. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's one thing I, I practice very hard now, you know, two years into it, mm-hmm. because I want to... If I don't, then I can see I can get away with things, and it just, it, you know, it starts to snowball. Absolutely. And it's such a great feeling to say I'm sorry. Yeah. It really is, to, to mean it, too. hmm You know? Because, one, the people that I, I, I say sorry to now, I never said it to before, so mm-hmm. they're like, holy shit, type thing. But it also shows them that I'm changing and that I'm trying really hard. Mm-hmm. So it, it was absolutely a must for me to take accountability for any and all actions I did yeah. and own up to them. And I'll do that, you know, to my best of my ability moving forward. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to follow up. I have a follow up oh. question because you answered that and it led straight into my neck. My, Go ahead. my last question. Um, I want like, just describe the freedom that you felt finally admitting your addiction to your brother and like, just how, what that felt like and how that has impacted your recovery and propelled you into the world that you're into now? Oh, probably the, the best feeling of my life 
even though it's such a horrible mm-hmm. reason why. Yeah. You know, one of the most exhausting things to do is try to find the origin of a lie. Ooh. Because one lie leads to a next, leads to the next. So mm-hmm. trying to find the origin of your lie, a.k.a. keep up with the lies, mm-hmm. is exhausting. And it's horrible to the people you're lying to, obviously. And it just, it builds up. So it was such a relief now that I, I didn't have to lie anymore. I didn't have to hide anymore. This is, you no, know, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm very sorry that I got to this point. You know, I'm very sorry. I know it's going to take time for some of you, you know, to to forgive me, or some may never do so, mm-hmm. and that's all right. All I can do is work on myself. Yeah. All I can do is just make sure I'm doing everything I can to be the best individual I can. Mm-hmm. And that my goal every single morning is the same exact goal to be better than I was yesterday. Absolutely. Even if it's just a little bit, that means I'm progressing in the right direction Mm -hmm. and what a lot of people you know they don't they don't give themselves credit for progress any you know progress not perfection is something i i I have a sign right next to me strive for progress not perfection and any progress is progress Mm -hmm. and i tell this a lot with with mothers that i work with who are just want their son or daughter to be fixed like that Mm -hmm. they they don't they don't see it that they're another day sober. Yeah. That's the miracle on itself. And as little as progress may be, it's still progress in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by having that mentality, it, 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 it helps me if I have a horrible day, I go to bed sober, I'm, I'm progressing. Mm-hmm. And whatever, you know, whatever caused the bad day, I'm not running to a drink or a drug to, to numb it or to, you know, to, get rid of the feelings. Yeah. And those, those are things I never could do before. Mm-hmm. And so it's such a, you know, it's rewarding to know how far I've come and, you know, it's okay to treat yourself yeah. for, for things, for positive things. That's how you build up your self-esteem. That's how you build up your confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, if you put a goal out and you achieve it, give yourself credit, you know, don't, don't stop. Obviously, mm-hmm. now make bigger goals, make bigger goals. And, you know, that, you know, every time we achieve something, it releases dopamine. It makes us feel better. It makes us feel happy. Mm-hmm. You know, so by putting out these goals, you're going to, you know, make feel better. And you're going to be, oh, my God, I, I'm maybe I'm only only, quote, unquote, five months over, but I feel awesome. Yeah. And, you know, just I have that mentality every single day. Yeah. I, I got a little off topic from, you know, your question that nah. it goes in here by being Absolutely. able to be free and honest. It le- it opens up every single door I could possibly want. Anything mm-hmm. is possible. If I'm just honest to myself, yeah. because then I'll be, and that's the most important part. I'll backtrack. If I'm not honest with myself, how can I ever be honest with anyone else? Mm. Absolutely. All right, Eric, what, cool. what you got? All right. So, um, let's see. So I've kind of been on triggers and reservations for the past few weeks, just kind of like analyzing and thinking about that a lot. Um, so I guess my question is how, how for you, since you're coming up on two years clean and sober, how has your triggers and reservations changed in the span of two years um, from, you know, 
let's say, you know, um, one I hear a lot, I guess, is like a bottle opening is a trigger for people or, you know, watching something on TV. Like how have those triggers and reservations changed over two years? Well, there was a real important uh, incident that happened um, in December. I was living in, in the link house and I had to, I had a doctor's appointment in the town that my dealer was from. Mm-hmm. And I would take my, I'd ride my bike to the train station, take the train station. It was an hour away to the town. I go to my appointment, get on my bike, um, bring my bike onto the train and to my town and my mom would drive me the rest of the way. So what happened was bikes weren't allowed on the train during this rush hour. It was December 23rd. So we're in the the middle of dead of winter Mm -hmm. holiday, you know, holiday shopping galore. And I had to ride my bike through the very streets that I used to wait on every single day, three times a day, Mm. driving, you know, keep driving by him on my bike, freezing my ass off, obviously. Yeah. And I had much on me. I had like 10 bucks on me and not once did I have the thought of stopping to get some nips to get some fireball. And I rode my bike 10 miles to home. It was like 9.7 or something. Mm -hmm. And what that moment told me was I'm going to be okay. Mm. There couldn't have been any worse of a a trigger or, or, you know, incident that I, that was put in front of me than that. And I made it through with my head down, just moving forward. Just like I, you know, I am today, just always trying to move forward. And it also told me, wow, I'm pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. I couldn't walk up the stairs without huffing and puffing six months prior. I I didn't shower for days on end because it took up too much energy. And, you know, fast forward that, something I didn't mention is I ran this year's Boston Marathon. (laughs) I ran 26.2 miles. Wow. And in less than two years removed from full-blown alcoholic and addict. Mm. Why? My, I was running for all those who were out there thinking they can't. My uh, campaign was hashtag running for recovery, and I raised just under $9,000 for the people in those group homes that I mentioned. Wow, that's awesome. So they have, you know, they have expenses that, for emergency needs or you know, yeah. for better things in their houses, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, riding the 10 miles showed me I was pretty healthy. Running 26.2 is, you know, that's a bucket list. I got, and short story on it, I got asked by my company who I was working with for like four months. So when I graduated the Link House, I was working at a retail store in that town, but I moved home, so I needed a job closer. So I was working for a place closer. But then my book came out, so I had to go basically on a tour, and I was making, you know, paying my bills through my sales of my book. Mm -hmm. But I knew I wanted to get into the industry of recovery, so I had already... You know my recovery coach certification, mm-hmm. and I ended up with a company called Bayco Human Services. That company was it was amazing, and I, I ended there last month. But that, that was a company where I learned so much of the, again the value of the the human being. Mm-hmm. And so I got asked right before Christmas if I wanted to run, and they knew I was a former minor league athlete, and I was in good shape. I worked out a lot now that I was you know that I was sober. And it was right before Christmas. And my dad ran multiple 
marathons. We have no clue how, obviously, because he was an alcoholic. He drank every single day for 40 years, mm-hmm. unless he was in the hospital or in jail. And I'm sure he probably drank in there, too. <laughs> but it was his way, you know, of saying, you can do this, kid. And I thought of that all, all four and a half months of training. I made sure I, I looked up the shortest amount of time you need to train. It was four months. So I had four and a half. I was like, absolutely. Let's do this. And I trained my ass off. And if I ever got down, I would think about the people that I need to show. I need to cross that line for all the millions out there that are still sick and suffering Mm. or all those people who, you know, are in early recovery and they're struggling though. They want to go back they're having those triggers. Yeah. You know, I was running everyone. And by the time the race came around, April 15th, I already, I already finished in my head. I already replayed that thousands of times. So I got to enjoy four and a half, four and a half hours of just the most exhilarating experience of my life, hands down. Mm. And the best part about it is after I get, you know, cross that finish line, get my medal is I get to meet, you know, my girlfriend, my beautiful girlfriend, who's been the most supportive part of my recovery so something, um, you know, I think of is one of the things for my triggers is I have her. I'm very blessed to have someone who's in recovery herself 20 months and nice. who I can go to, obviously, who I can, you know, you know, put a shoulder to lean on, you know, and the, the two kids were there and my mom and my stepdad. Mm. It was the best experience of my life. Again, hands down, just having them there and then sharing in that moment. It was such a beautiful thing personally. But also for the fact that I'm showing everyone what's possible. This is what's for anything. Yeah. I, I, was, I became a best-selling author for a book I wrote while I was in rehab. I ran a Boston, the Boston Marathon, you know, a year and a half removed from full-blown every single day destroying my body. Mm. Anything's really possible if we want it bad enough. Mm. And, you know... So the, the trigger part, you know, that moment when I rolled the bike, it, it showed me that I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And what I do, if there ever is a moment of, of doubt, I just think back to something someone said when I was leaving that the first 30 days, the holding. Mm-hmm. And this individual who, he was, you know, he's been in and out of the system. He was slightly older than me, but he was like a mentor to me those first you know, 30 days, those really crucial 30 days. And what he told me was, don't ever forget this feeling right now. Don't ever forget what you feel right now leaving this. And I kept that with me the whole time because I never want to feel like that again. Mm-hmm. I never, ever want to put myself through that. And that individual, I actually, uh, two weeks before my TED Talk, I was riding down in Mass Ave in Boston. is known as Methadone Mile. There's mm-hmm. you know, people you know, who are sick, up and down, tense everywhere. We have a huge needle problem in, yeah. in downtown Boston. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting at a stoplight and I see someone panhandling. It's that person. Oof. And I, I yelled his name, Josh. And he literally like jumped through the window to hug me and tears, like instant tears were coming down his face. And I, I speak of this experience on my Ted talk in, in, in detail. And I was, I was shaken up. And I'm like, the light turned green. I'm like, here's my card. Just please call me. Please call me. Because the first thing he said to me, not, it wasn't, hey, how you doing? It was, Jason, I don't want to live like this anymore. 
and you know, my heart like broke right then and there uh. because we were both in the same place at the same time. I, I very well could have been there with him. Yeah. So the next day I went back and I went looking for him. It was Valentine's day. And I see someone coming towards me with the happy Valentine's day sign. And it was him. And this time I asked him, Hey, get in the car, please. He does. I pull over to gas station. He just starts crying again immediately. I'm crying because he's sharing, you know, what's going on mm-hmm. in the past year and a half since, you know, since we went our separate ways, how he's lost his, his teenage children. His parents have no, don't want to talk to him. He's telling me these nightmare stories about living on the streets and living in the local shelters. Mm-hmm. And he, he said at the end, I heard you're doing really well. I'm so proud of you, Jason. Do you think you can be my recovery coach when I, when I get off? And I'm emotional now just saying that because it's, it's so powerful of what is possible for me to help, but it's also that reminder of where I could be. I very well could be right there with him. And by, you know, it, it's just hard work and, and being grateful for everything that I have and doing what he said, mm-hmm. remembering that feeling. If I ever have something pop up, like you said, like a commercial or someone drinking and, and to be honest, I, I don't have any of those. I'm very, very lucky because mm-hmm. I know people who have, you know, you know, serious, not withdrawals, but those, they just want to drink. They yeah. just want to run to their dealer. I, I'm very fortunate. I don't. And to me, that's one of those signs that that's because you're supposed to help people who do. You're supposed to, you're that voice. You're that voice that's going to help people show what's possible. And again, it stuck with me to the end. Till today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. That's um, awesome, man. All right. Um, well, I think. Do you have any more questions? I'm, I'm so, out. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess we'll do this real quick. Um, so. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, we have a we have a question from uh, Twitter. Um, so this is who's from, it from? This is from a Twitter user Path to Restoration. Uh, the handle is at to um, restore it, and awesome. the question is what is the significance that service to others has had on your recovery which i feel like you've answered a lot yeah but if you want to do a quick you know shout out to him well also like a quick kind of like summary of what what does that mean to you like what is how does the significance of service impact your recovery the most gratifying experience i ever have today is knowing I played a part in someone's recovery as small as it may be. Hmm. And, you know, to share just one of the stories, um, a middle-aged woman reached out to me last summer telling me about her brother. who's was a little older than her and he was an alcoholic drinking every day. Mm-hmm. They've tried uh, interventions. They've tried um, him going to detoxes, detoxes. They've all sat down with them. They've given up. They have no hope whatsoever. And she reached out to me because she saw an article in the paper about me in my book. And she said, do you think you could talk to him? And, you know, I made no promises other than I can you know, reach out give him my information. And if he wants to talk, absolutely. I'll, I'll do whatever I can. Mm-hmm. And so it was a Saturday night and we're texting back and forth. And then we, he, he finally calls. And the very first thing he says to me, I want to cash in my 401k and move to Las Vegas like Nicolas Cage. 
Oh, no. First words of the conversation, and I'm like, oh shit, this is this is gonna be hard. Yeah. And <clears throat> I I shared a lot of the stuff that I've shared with you, and about how you know being sober is not miserable. I'm having a blast. I'm my life started when I was 34 years old, uh-huh. and I have no problem with that. It doesn't matter how old you are; it's never too late. And you know, to share, I'm real, and that's why a lot of people reached out to me. You know, early on, it was just I'm I'm as real as it gets. There's no sugarcoating addiction. It fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I can't ever sugarcoat what I went through because that just it's not fair to me and to the people who are experiencing it now. And like 45 minutes into that conversation, he's like, "All right, I'm ready. Let's go." And I didn't know what he meant. I'm like, "What do you mean, let's go?" He's like, "I want to go to detox now. Mm-hmm. I want to go. I want to go get help." And I was like, "Holy shit! Awesome!" Like, all right, let me make some calls because I, I, I have a really good network since, um, you know, with the book release and speaking at a lot of different places, and yeah. especially the, um, the forum, uh, international overdose awareness day. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to people and I reached out to some of the, the facilities I knew he has very good insurance. Mind you, he couldn't get into any place that Saturday night. Mm. I was beyond livid. I was so angry. The next day, you know, obviously I apologize. I'm like, text me, call me anytime. I don't care what it is. If you have the urge, the next day I I'm with my mother and she could tell I'm really annoyed and she knew I was mad. And so I am calling one place after the next, I'm flipping out and I finally got a place for him. And it was like three or four hours away. His sister drove him there and the fast forward Six months later, oh, actually, my my one year anniversary. I'm at I'm I'm speaking, and afterwards, my girlfriend you know presents me my one year medallion, and two individuals come up to me afterwards. I've never seen in my life. Hmm. It's the brother and sister, and oh, immediately wow. we all start crying, and she's hugging me, and he, he has his as well. It's like we're all three of us hugging, and she says to me, "Thank you for giving my brother back." Mm. And I mean, I mean, I'm crying now because it was, that's what it's all about to me. Yeah. That's it, there's nothing. There's no better feeling than that. Mm-hmm. And so like then like five months later from that point, I get a text from her of his six month chip. It's like, like you can't make that stuff up. Yeah. And that's the service work is the most, it's everything to me. It's my life. Mm-hmm. My day is revolves around helping others because I don't stay sober if I don't. Mm-hmm. I, there's no way. And I can't tell you how great it feels to know that, again, I don't care if it's the littlest part ever that if I play in stone sobriety. And something Chris Heron said that stayed with me, you know, he's very famous, you know, in, in the recovery uh, world. And uh, he's from Massachusetts. And I, I heard him speak once. And he always says, if I can just, reach out to one person. If he speaks at a school of a thousand. If I can just get through to one person, then he did his job. Yep. And I, I said that every single time I speak is, you know, that one person can change the world. Mm-hmm. That one person, you don't know what they're capable of. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to, for every opportunity I get to share. And when my girlfriend did present me with that medallion, that, the most beautiful thing that's ever been said to me 
was she said, Jason, you always say that one person that can be the one who makes a difference. She said, you are that person. Mm. And, you know, that immediately brought tears to my eyes because I, I realized I, 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 I am doing that. I'm just being able to help others. I'm sharing and just helping others. And, you know, I don't, I, I'm no one special. I'm just following a feeling inside that says, keep moving forward, keep sharing, keep being honest with yourself and with others. And, you know, good things will happen. And, you know, there's no, there's no better feeling. There's no better feeling than knowing I played a part in someone's recovery. Mm. And the second, the backside of that is knowing that I can't help everyone. That really, really hurts. Really hurts. And, but I understand that it's, it's not possible. And I have to understand that or, you know, going into, you know, when I meet someone for the first time, you know, developing feelings for that individual because I'm a human being, I'm going to care about them, but I got to remember that not everyone's savable and, and it sucks. That's why I really cherish what I do when I know that someone's getting better because of what I may have said, you know, what I might have told their, their mother or, you know, what I might have wrote. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. That's powerful, man. All right. Well, uh, we'd like to give you the opportunity real quick to uh, plug your book with us, uh, get that out on the uh, out on the airwaves to all of our listeners. Uh, tell us tell us what they can read and where they can find it. I can't. I didn't even mention the name of the book. <laughs> you know, it's funny how after speaking so much, you really I, I just want to speak more about the recovery side now because it's it's I, it. It gets me going, gets the juices flowing. Yeah, I got But you. I know it's important to obviously share where I was, but I didn't even mention uh, my book, Stop Thinking Like That, No Matter What. And it's a bright yellow cover. It's a very basic cover. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote it. I edited the entire thing. My girlfriend helped me with that. I designed the cover, and it, it, was, it was such a great experience. And you can find it on Amazon. You can... Um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any website online. Uh, my website is Jason Dash Highland, H Y L A N D. So Jason Dash Highland.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, my Instagram, which is where I put the most content out, is at Motivational Recovery. Nice. And lastly, would be my Facebook. And that's just my name with an R in the middle, Jason R. Highland. So Instagram is where I put the most content out there. I, I, I want to put as much as I can because again, I want to show people what's possible. Yeah. But you know, sharing, I share that Instagram with my girlfriend because we're both in recovery and you know, this is what's possible. And Hey, we have bad days too. Yeah. This is how we get through it. You know, we want to, we want to be able to help out any way we can. And then on Facebook is where I put the, you know, the long, uh, more like, the the content where there's you have to decipher more so to speak because it's so long it, there's there's so much you have to engulf inside there yeah whether it's a blog I write I write for Sober Nation um, I'm a contributor for there or yes. if I'm just you know one of my own blogs or something I I see a value um, a friend's podcast whatever it may be I produce a lot of podcasts too again if you just Google my name Jason Highland mm-hmm. thankfully I, I I take up the whole first page. Minus one spot. Uh, the president of MGM Studios in Japan, his name is Jason Highland too. Nice. But every other spot you'll see is, you know, it's 
Amazon for my book, stop thinking like that. My website, Jason Dash Island, Instagram at motivational recovery. And, you know, to, to the viewers or the listeners out there, please don't hesitate. Yeah. You know, it can be completely anonymous. Don't hesitate to ever reach out because I'll, I'll be as real as possible. I'll help you any way I possibly can. If I don't know the answer, I'll tell you that, mm-hmm. you know, I will, I'm not perfect by any means. I don't have all the answers, but I do know how to stay sober one day at a time. And mm-hmm. I can, and I can tell you what works for me. Yeah. And if we can't, you know, even if it's just, just a vent, a lot of people just, like I said, just want someone to talk to. I am more than happy. Please reach out to me anytime on any of those you know, social media or, you know, my email, which is right on my website. What I like to say when I, when I end something I write is there's always hope you're never alone. And as cliche as it is, I don't care. If I can do it, you can too. Yeah. All right. Well, we would like to thank you, Jason, for joining us today. Let's give him a clap, Eric. Oh, <laughs> oh that was awesome. I am so you know, grateful that I, I saw that, you know, that tweet that you had because this is what I want to do. I want any opportunity to share not so much of my story, but what's possible. Yeah. So that's what's that's most important to me is sharing that hope and inspiration. Absolutely. Well, here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. So follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, uh, follow our new friend Jason, go get his book, read it, contact him, contact us, send us your questions, like, subscribe, share, all that, retweet, good stuff. And uh, most importantly, everybody out there, stay safe and stay clean.